Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, July the 3rd. One topic dominates this week's podcast, Indigenous Health. I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague Stephanie Clark, Managing Editor of the Lancet. Stephanie, we covered this topic a few years ago in the journal, so why the interest now? Part of the reason for this series that we did in 2006 was to draw attention to the health of Indigenous people, which is generally very poor. Three to four years later on, we wanted to see if any progress had been made. As we say in our editorial, and as Gracie and King point out, it seems, in fact, that very little has been achieved in terms of improving the health and well-being of Indigenous people. Let's now hear from one of the co-authors of the series, Professor Michael Gracie. Professor Gracie, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Can you just remind us of what we currently know concerning indigenous populations and health? There are several important things. One is there is a huge population of indigenous people around the world. About 400 million indigenous people. Uh, They live on every continent. They come from thousands of cultures. They live in dozens of countries, so they're in our midst, if you like, but uh, we don't know all that much about them, except that we do know that they have very poor standards of health when compared with their non-Indigenous counterparts. It's clear when you look at Indigenous health around the world that there are common determinants of these unsatisfactory Uh, disease patterns. They include poverty, unemployment, poor education, racial prejudice, which is often institutionalised, poor housing, poor hygiene, and all that uh, these things cause. Lack of clean water, lack of nutritious food, and so forth. When you look at maternal and child health, for example, it's very important to appreciate that in indigenous populations, about 45 or 50% of the populations are made up of infants, children and young adolescents. This is really quite different to the pattern in non-indigenous populations. In indigenous populations, there is high infant mortality, high perinatal mortality, high maternal mortality and high morbidity rates associated with this and with low birth weight and intrauterine growth retardation. And why is that? Is that because in many cases indigenous populations live separately, they're not integrated into a wider mainstream community so they haven't got access to health services? Well, that's partly the problem but it's also partly because they live in such impoverished circumstances, lacking the basics of uh, fresh fruit, vegetables, clean water, and the basic elements we take for granted. So as well as the lack or difficult access to services, it's actually to do with the physical environment that they're living in. Exactly. Yeah, that's part of it. But you also have to bear in mind that this is overlain by very important emotional problems that are associated with the fact that these people were Indigenous and are now overtaken by the dominant societies that run the countries that were 
originally theirs. If we take, for example, my own country, Australia, which was colonised by the British a little over 200 years ago, the impact of colonisation on a group of people who had lived in Australia for maybe 70,000 years or more was profound and uh, their way of life was taken away from them so that they are now outcasts in the country in which uh, they originally lived. This is something that many people who are not Indigenous don't understand and don't appreciate. Also, Professor Gracie, if you're an interesting, I suppose, relatively newer angle on the story that is Indigenous people and health is urbanisation, which is a relatively recent trend. What effect does that migration have on Indigenous health? This has an enormous effect. Urbanisation is normally thought of as transmigration of populations from rural or remote areas into urban areas, but this is not necessarily correct. Urbanisation really means a change in the lifestyle of people, whether they live in large conurbations or whether they live in an urbanised way which is different from their previously traditional way of living. In many Indigenous societies, this means a change to unhealthy diets, high-calorie foods, high-fat foods, high-salt foods, inactivity and a rampant rise in the rates of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, renal disease and all of their complications. This is really an enormous public health disaster. And finally, Professor Gracie, let's jump to, to the main conclusions from the paper. I guess there's a slight slightly sort of twin track message really isn't it one of them being that despite a lot of negative reality which is health in indigenous populations there is a a don't despair message action can and should happen isn't that right exactly this gap between indigenous and other populations demands to be closed the international declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples goes some way towards that but let's hope that that's not just rhetoric, empty rhetoric. We need to see activities so that we get good statistics and good information and good programs that we can measure so that we can see progress being made in the years ahead. And governments have to accept that they do have Indigenous populations that are severely disadvantaged. Many governments do not recognise their own Indigenous populations because the realities of the situation are politically uncomfortable or embarrassing for them. And this is not good enough for Indigenous people. They really deserve better than this. I think that's a very powerful way to end our conversation Professor Michael Gracie thank you very much indeed and to say of course there's plenty more detail in Professor Gracie's paper. Let's now hear from Professor Michael King 
author of the second review we published this week on Indigenous health. I began by asking him to define what is meant by health and well-being among Indigenous populations. First of all, health is viewed not just as the absence of disease, which is our really our modern model, but from a more holistic view of living life in balance. The elements that contribute to health are not only the physical and mental dimensions, which are the ones that we usually deal with, but also the emotional and the spiritual. That's certainly the North American indigenous concept uh, in, in, in most of our peoples. For instance, it's not uncommon to hear an indigenous person who has obvious physical indications of disease, such as diabetes or chronic bronchitis, to declare themselves well because their emotions and spirit are in balance with their physical and mental state. Just go on, if you would, because you do cover in your article the relevance and the importance of language and spirituality as well, don't you? Well, spirituality to many indigenous people, and I must emphasize that it's hard to talk completely in generalities because indigenous peoples, even in North America, actually represent a very broad range of uh, cultures and languages. But uh, spirituality, in any case, is not really considered a religion for most people, but a way of life and being in the world. So it's really tied up with the concept of wellness and health. The expression of one's identity is an important part of this wellness. And so language and culture, and that includes the ceremonies that uh, people participate in, are vehicles for the expression of indigenous identity. So participation in these cultural activities, in these uh, uh, ceremonial activities, for instance, it's very important to be able to use the language. And, and so that's why it's, language is so important, and language preservation is so important to uh, indigenous cultures because it's the means by which indigenous people can best express their identity and that then feeds back to the concept that identity is part of what keeps us well. Indeed, and can you just touch upon the impact of urbanization and multi-movement from a rural to urban to urban dwellings and vice versa. That's had an effect, hasn't it? This is a very important aspect, certainly one that's probably unavoidable and therefore we need to deal with it. The important thing to me is not urbanization per se, but the residential instability that uh, so often goes along with it. Because after all, there are many positive effects of urban living and even though that these tend to ex uh, elude uh, vulnerable populations with the internal migrations that have taken place primarily in uh, the 20th century indigenous peoples tend to lose those important connections to their communities and connectedness is a part of that balance that leads to health and so uh, it's important, I think, that we work at trying to build up alternatives to what we once had in terms of connections with communities. And I see this happening in the future, but uh, right now we're in a period of instability where we've lost those connections with the traditional lands and territories and our communities, and we haven't yet built up successful connections uh, in the new envir urban environment. Can you go on and explain the concept of holistic health and its relevance in the indigenous setting? That's certainly a, a very important concept uh, in indigenous health. So holistic health is more than the idea of 
uh, just looking after one's physical and mental well-being. For many Aboriginal uh, cultures, health also includes uh, the other dimensions, the emotional and the spiritual dimensions that all combine to contribute to health. And it's important for Indigenous people to maintain a balance between those four dimensions of health. In the absence of this, then the imbalance uh, then contributes to the illness or the compromised wellness in the individual. And finally, Professor King, what are your concluding remarks? You, You talk in the paper about the question, are we making progress? So I guess my question is, can you answer that question? Are we making progress in terms of better understanding the very specific, very interesting and very different health issues that relate to indigenous populations compared with, if you like, more westernized or conventional populations? Well, I think I have a a tempered positive view on whether we're making progress. I believe we are, and although certainly we're seeing some backward movement as well, but I would like to at least focus on the way forward. And to me, the important things uh, things are to look at the investments of time and resources and so on that we need to make to find uh, the way forward to improved health for Indigenous peoples. The important things from my point of view are in terms of uh, capacity building in communities and uh, programs to uh, develop and assist in resilience and self-determination of people. It's important to encourage and allow and provide resources, permit indigenous peoples to really take control of their own health. For instance, Calvin Helen's book, Dancing with Dependency, uh, cites many examples where indigenous communities are achieving progress and particularly points out those uh, uh, communities that are achieving progress through their own initiatives, essentially taking control of uh, the things that are important to their own lives, including health. Well, thank you very much, Professor King. Thank you to all our contributors this week. That's Professor Malcolm King, Professor Michael Gracie, and my colleague, Dr. Stephanie Clark. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.